Hulbert is a visual neuroscientist specialising in the study of colour. Anya talked to Michael Barclay about growing up in Texas and the difficult choices she had to make in deciding on a career. If you've ever wondered why you love blue and hate the colour khaki or spent hours arguing over a colour chart because you and your partner can't agree on how to paint the bedroom... You'll be fascinated by my guest today, Professor Anya Hulbert. She's a neuroscientist and a leading researcher into how the brain perceives colour and why we feel so strongly about it. Brought up in Texas, studying at Princeton and Harvard, she's now a professor of visual neuroscience at the University of Newcastle. She's also spent years advising the National Gallery on how to show their pictures so we can see the colours most vividly. She's married to the science writer Matt Ridley. I mentioned the colour blue there, Anya. It's certainly my favourite colour. And also, I think, scientific researchers confirmed virtually the whole world's favourite colour. 
I love blue too. And I'm afraid we're not special in that way. Uh, it is true that scientific experiments over the years, over more than a century, have shown that people do tend to prefer blue. And it could be because of the associations that we have to blue. The blue of a clear blue sky, the clean blue, fresh water. But blue is a complex colour too, of course, because we also talk about being blue. We don't like blue if it's on uh, bread, which means the bread is mouldy. So our emotional responses <laughs> to blue do depend on context. And very interestingly, in Roman history, uh, blue eyes were considered barbaric and evil. So blue has not always been loved. And of course, we talk about uh, blue music, the blues. And uh, music is obviously very important in your life. You grew up, I think, hoping to be a concert pianist. At one time, I wished that I had the technique and the concentration and the focus and the mental agility to be a concert pianist. I, I soon realized that that was out of my reach, but I did perform quite a lot, uh, both as a teenager and at university, and indeed when I um, went to Cambridge University for a postgraduate degree. You seem to have known really early on that if you couldn't be a concert pianist, the next best thing was to become a neuroscientist. Well, I always loved both. I loved many things, science, mathematics, music. I loved colour as well. And I didn't want to be constrained by any one identity. I didn't want to be pigeonholed as either a scientist or a musician. I think like many people, I wanted to have it all. I wanted to explore it all. I wanted to live life to the fullest. And I think actually one of my uh, complaints about the British education system is that it forces children into one path or another either into science or the arts. Fortunately, going through the American educational system, I wasn't forced down one particular route. And all through high school and university as well, I was able to continue to pursue both, being a physics major at Princeton and at the same time a university scholar in music. I was able to continue doing both. But at some point, of course, I realized that I was only sort of pretending to be a musician. I didn't have the talent, uh, the mental concentration, the mental agility to be uh, a, a, a practicing professional musician. I see trees that are green Red roses too And I think to 
I'm interested to know, when you first became uh, curious about how the brain perceives colour, do you have a strong response to colour as a child? I did love colour, but I have no artistic talent. I was, however, inspired to paint my room as a teenager. I painted by hand the walls of my room. I divided them uh, diagonally into two halves each and painted the halves in contrasting colours of blue and a sort of orangish pink. <laughs> this was the veritable tangerine dream of West Coast Americans. Uh, yes, it, it was, um, yes, it was a bit electric, let's put it that way. 
Have you come to any conclusion, Anya, about what is going on in the brain that makes one person love a particular colour and another one hate it? Colour is made in the brain. It's not made in the eye. The whole process of perceiving colour begins with light that's received by light receptors in the eyes. But then there are multiple stages and levels and brain areas that process that signal, ultimately to end up with the percept and, dare I say, the concept of colour. And because of those multiple stages and levels, which call in other factors, other influences that differ between people, because people's personal histories, their experiences, even the light they've been exposed to earlier in the day or prior in that year have differed, the end result, that colour that is constructed by that multiplicity of processes, will be different between individuals. In your own life, Anya Hulbert, growing up in the bright sunlight of Texas and then moving to Britain to study at Oxford, the light, the colours must have seemed very different. Was that a shock? It was, actually, what Bill Bryson calls the Tupperware skies. Those leaden skies settled down and seemed to block one's view, block one's connection with nature. And do you have ways of compensating for the lack of light? I did find, especially when my children were young, that I had to resort to intensive light therapy in the morning to kickstart my brain, uh, to chase those winter blues away. Uh, So I was an early adopter of uh, bright light therapy. Uh, I used to frighten my children by uh, putting on my light visor, which was a cap that shone very bright light directly into my eyes. So I, I, I looked like a sort of monster from the deep wearing this thing early in the morning. But it did make a difference. Because we're going to hear Jerry Jeff Walker and his up-against-the-wall redneck mother. Why did you choose this? <laughs> I'd love to hear that phrase pronounced with a very proper English accent. <laughs> uh, up-against-the-wall redneck mother. That's the way you should say it. So this is a song which was sort of a high school anthem for me. I did grow up in Texas, where country music is just vital to life. I was a bit of a highbrow, so I didn't perhaps appreciate it as much then as I do now. When I go back to Texas, it's the first thing I do. I switch on uh, 93Q and listen to country music, driving down the straight highways into the huge horizons. But this song was one that we all knew very well in the sort of mid to late 70s. It's a great honky-tonk song, but it's also got a sort of socio-political side to it. It's about the tensions between hippies and rednecks. And I was probably a little bit more on the highbrow hippie side of things. But I did flirt briefly with a redneck boy who did drive a pickup truck, which did have a gun rack in the cab. But unbeknownst to his dad, he also had a, a, a marijuana patch hidden away on the ranch. He was born... In Oklahoma, his wife's name Betty Lou Thelma Liz. He's not responsible for what he's doing, cause his mother made him what 
up against the wall, redneck mother, Jerry Jeff Walker. Now, I can't let you go today, Anya Hulbert, without, as it were, pinning you down, because I want to talk about the dress. This was a photo that created an absolute social media sensation in 2015. Viewers disagreed. Was it black and blue or white and gold? Ten million people argued about it on Twitter. But you actually got hold of the real dress and put it in a tent in Newcastle University. So you can tell us what colour it really is. Ah, no, I cannot, because colour is in your mind. So I can tell you what colour the dress would appear if it were lit by uniform white light, a single source. I can tell you that 100% of people would agree when it is lit that way that it is black and blue. But taking the real dress, putting it in a tent and illuminating it with multiple light sources, some of which were bluish and the others were yellowish, I could get couples to come into the tent looking at the very same real three-dimensional dress and disagree on its colour with some saying white and gold and others saying black and blue. Well, that just goes to show what a complex, fascinating and bewildering subject colour is, which is doubtless why you're so drawn to it. I think of colour as uh, people's personal possessions, and that's why they became so vehemently distressed when challenged on their perceptions of the dress. So people were offended if someone said, no, it's not black and blue, it's actually white and gold. They felt that their own personal treasure was being stolen. They were being uh, challenged in, in a way that was very upsetting. I've had some marvellous birthdays, uh, one that I'll never forget. I was playing in Southport, not far from Liverpool, and I was support for a great American singer-songwriter called Hugh Moffat. And as it was my birthday, a lot of my friends were arriving with gifts for me. Uh, books and CDs and things like that. Uh, but amongst the gifts I got that night was one from a singer-songwriter from Blackpool called Pete Naden. He came and we had a pint and he said, Charlie, I've got a title for a song for you. He said, it was given to me. He said, and I can do nothing with it. He said, so see what you can make of it. And uh, he said this blind child had been overheard saying this very thing to the father. She said, what colour is the wind, Daddy? And I thought, ah, that's absolutely beautiful, you know. So I took it home and uh, then I had the daunting task of trying to write a song that would match that beautiful phrase, that great title. Uh, I wrote this song and I was never really aware of its potential until I began to play it at gigs and uh, I got this fantastic reaction. So I kept hold of the song and recorded it eventually and it's been a fantastic friend to me. So thanks very much, Pete, wherever you are and the little child who dreamed up the title, God bless you. This song did so much good for me. What colour is the wind, Daddy? Is it yellow, red or blue? When he's playing with my hair, Daddy Does he do the same to you? When he's dying, does his colour fade? Is it gentle breeze? A lighter shade Just like his friend the sea The 
Blackbird starts to sing, Daddy. Do the flowers hear him too? When he's pouring out his heart, Daddy. Tell me what do roses do? Do they cast their scent upon the air and this fragrance? Just a rose in prayer Giving thanks to God above For the blackbird's song of love Blow, wind, blow Wild and free Shape and size I've seen them all With my daddy's eyes I know that grass is green Daddy I've touched it with my toes And snow is purest white Daddy Felt it with my nose, but my favorite color has to be the color of your love for me. And daddy, I've been told that love is always gold.
has written a series of meditations based on the Psalms. Today we hear his thoughts on Psalm 41. It's followed by part of Shostakovich's Piano Concerto No. 2, played on the piano by Dmitry Shostakovich Jr., conducted by Maxim Shostakovich, with the Orchestra Symphonique de Montreal. A response to Psalm 41. That you might make me whole in every part. Have mercy on me now. Oh, raise me up and comfort me when things just fall apart. For you have known this too, the grip and grope of suffering, the time when comforts fail, the false pretense of friendship, the false hope of some relief, the sense of being frail, of being helpless, wounded, vulnerable, and worst of all, the sickening betrayal by those we thought were closest, miserable dependence on those who've lost our trust. What can I do but cry, be merciful, be merciful and raise me from the dust. Restore my health because I cry to you. You are my heart's desire from first to last.
Larry Gentis has produced a series of talks for us where he imagines himself to be a Bible character. Today he completes the story of Joseph. Abasi, fetch my coat. What's that? The royal scribe has arrived to update the archives. Um, show him in. <clears throat> Do be seated. Would you like some refreshments? Abayomi, bring fruit juice and water, quickly. Now, where were we? <laughs> oh, yes, I'd been let out of prison, interpreted Pharaoh's dream and put in charge of the entire nation of Egypt. It's as if one's world was turned upside down overnight. First of all, let me say our God has a sense of humor. Remember, at the start of my story, my brother stripped me of my gloriously beautiful coat, threw me into a pit and sold me as a slave for 20 pieces of silver. Normally, that would be the end of the story. But everywhere I went, in Potiphar's house, in prison, wherever, God's hand was on me. So in all these places, everything prospered. And since I'd been storing grain and preparing for the famine, the silos were so full that we built more of them for the abundant harvests. Then, as God predicted, the famine hit. It happened just as quickly as the times of abundance. One fine day, it simply wouldn't rain anymore. When the people came to Pharaoh to beg for grain, he sent them to me, and I'd sold them enough grain to sustain them. People came from far and near to stave off starvation, and to my surprise, one day ten men presented themselves before me from the land of Canaan to buy grain. It was, you guessed it, my brothers, but one was missing. My younger brother Benjamin wasn't with them. I didn't let on that I was their brother and only spoke Egyptian to them with an interpreter. I spoke harshly and accused them of being spies, which they emphatically denied. They didn't recognize me. How could they? When they sold me into slavery so many years ago, I was but a boy. And what they saw in front of them was a man and not just any man, the second most powerful man in the known world. Put them in prison for three days, then release them under these conditions. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as far as the rest of you go, carry grain for the famine for your households and bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and you will not die. And they started talking amongst themselves and didn't know I understood every word they said. They were seeing this circumstance as a punishment for the way they treated me all those years ago. At this point, I separated myself from them and I went away to weep. Then I returned and had Simeon bound and put in prison, promising to release him if they came back again from Canaan with Benjamin. Why Simeon? Well, he was one of the ones who threw me into the pit and was the oldest after Reuben. But it was Reuben who argued against them harming me all those years ago. I then ordered my servants to load their donkeys with grain and fill their bags with the money they were supposed to pay the grain with. So they went on their way unawares back to their father Jacob. I was sure I'd see them again because the famine was only in the fourth year and there was food in only one place, Egypt. In the fifth year of the famine, they came again seeking to buy grain. This time they brought Benjamin and double the money they brought before, seeking to win my favor by reimbursing me for the money in their bags on the last trip. As my servants prepared supper with my brothers as guests, I came into the room with Simeon. They still had no idea that I was Joseph, their brother, and I questioned them through an interpreter about Benjamin, my father Jacob. After the feast, 
I ordered my servant to fill the sacks with grain and put them on the donkeys and to hide my silver cup in Benjamin's sack. When they started on their way, I had them searched and they found the silver cup. Why did I do these things? Well, I needed time to be able to forgive them because to tell the truth, they'd left me for dead and stolen years off my life. I wanted to see if they'd regretted what they'd done to me. I will also confess that when I first saw them, I wanted something that was compelling. In my heart, I wanted revenge. But in my heart, I also knew that it was God's plan to save me and my family. So I had this inner conflict between God's plan and my bitterness. That was why I deliberately staged the money in the sack, Simeon's imprisonment and the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. I just needed time to forgive and acknowledge God's plan in all that had happened. During the meal, I saw the regret they felt about what they did so long ago, and I knew it was time for truth. I told the Egyptians to leave the room and revealed myself to my brothers, this time in Hebrew. And then I sent them back to Canaan to bring my father Jacob to live here with me in Egypt, and I'm waiting for their return. After all, my coat's getting a bit tatty and worn, and my father, he makes a fine coat. God will take care of you. Take care.
Oh, 